Bodybuilding Dietitians podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today for what is now episode 109. And as always, you are joined by your hosts, Tara and Jack. Now, before we get into today's episode, we just want to remind you as always that if you do enjoy these podcasts, please feel free to tell your family and friends about them, take a screenshot and post it to your social media stories. That would be greatly appreciated. But without further ado, let's get cracking into this episode. We've got a good Q&A lined up for you. So Jack, what is the first question of the day? So the first question is quite a juicy one. Can you gain muscle and lose fat simultaneously? Oh my goodness me. Well, I guess the answer is yes, you can, but there are a lot of... It does depend. You can gain muscle and lose fat simultaneously, but there are going to be a lot of caveats to that. Yeah, there certainly are. And it's uh, from our experience, what we found with clients and with ourselves, often it's important to choose a quite a direct route and, and pursue that to the maximum extent, rather than trying to achieve two things at once, which kind of oppose each other and, and try and reap the rewards of both, unless it's a goal that coincides with both. So for example, someone who just wants to get healthier and fitter, then sure, they're going to be able to gain muscle and lose fat at the same time without wanting to gain the maximum amount of muscle possible. Because if someone comes to me and and is like, Jack, I want to gain as much muscle as possible, but I also want to lose fat. And we're, we're speaking about natural athletes here or natural people who aren't using PEDs. You can't maximally gain muscle and lose fat for, for the vast majority of people. Mm -hmm. You know, if you have a specific goal, then you're generally going to have to take a specific route to achieve that goal. But of course, there's always going to be exceptions to that, especially, you know, if you have a client and essentially it depends on their training age as well. Mm. If someone is brand new to the gym and they come to you and they're generally healthy and they don't have a weight issue by any means, you don't necessarily need to go into a dieting phase. You don't necessarily need to go into a surplus per se. And they're pretty much a newbie. Honestly, I actually love eking out some body recomposition gains with a lot of my clients. And I've actually experienced a lot of success with that, but particularly when they are just new to the gym, or at least if they're actually new to training with proper progression and intensity and actually following a proper program. Cause some people will be like, oh, you know, I've been going to the gym for two years, but they've kind of been showing up and kind of just freestyling it, mm. you know, doing whatever they well, feel like. One training session per year. Does that count as two years of training? Yeah, exactly. But essentially if I get a client and we don't necessarily need to lose weight or gain weight for at least the first like eight weeks of working together, I actually love trying to just stay in a body weight maintenance phase and really just getting their calories up, getting them training harder, getting them freaking strong. And when you monitor that through progress photos, I get my clients to send me photos every fortnight. I just find that I can be really successful with just eking out body recomposition gains, but then you kind of hit a threshold where you're like, okay, if we do want to keep progressing, we're going to have to move past this. We can't just maintain the same weight forever, obviously. And then that's generally when you would go into a surplus. Yeah, hundred percent. And I think I like the terminology you use there, body recomposition. Like that's, I guess, another term for gaining muscle and losing fat. And you're hundred percent correct in terms of, it depends on the training age and not just the training age. Cause as you said, 
someone could have been training for five years, but they could have been training very poorly, poor mm-hmm. nutrition as well. And then as soon as you give them adequate, uh, an adequate program, adequate training intensity and encourage that, then they might have some body recom. So basically what we're trying to say, the more advanced you are in terms of your training and your application of training and nutrition, the less likely it is that you're going to be able to gain muscle and lose fat at the same time. And there are some exceptions to this. So independent of training age, if you're coming back from an injury and potentially gaining some lost muscle back, or if you're coming back after a period of not training, having trained before, or if you are quite overweight and you are losing weight, then you can actually gain muscle at the same time as well. But that might coincide with being a beginner. So what we're trying to say is there's varying levels of efficiency for gaining muscle and losing fat. So a beginner, especially let's say someone who is a beginner and they're overweight, if they try and lose fat, then just by conducting resistance training, they're going to be able to lose fat and gain muscle at the same time. And I think it's so important that you make that point because it really debunks the myth that, oh, you have to be in an energy surplus. You have to Mm. be gaining weight in order to put on muscle mass because I think that would make a lot of people very hesitant to actually go to the gym and start lifting weights because let's say that someone does walk into the gym for the very first time and they are overweight and they do have this preconceived idea of I need to eat a lot of food and I need to lift a lot of weight and I need to gain more weight in order to put on muscle mass but I already feel uncomfortable in my own body. That might actually deter them from actually going over to the dumbbells and actually lifting some weights. They might then be more inclined to just hop on a cardio machine. Mm. So it's really important to get that point across that it really depends on your starting body composition. Yeah. Because absolutely, if you are new to the gym and you conduct resistance training and you have a healthy diet with an adequate protein, you can certainly still be in a calorie deficit losing weight, losing body fat, and building muscle at the same time. Yeah. And it might not be, it's, well, it's not going to be as productive as being in a surplus. There's no doubt about that. Being in a calorie surplus and slowly, or even just gaining weight in general is going to be most productive for muscle growth. I would say if you are starting from a healthy body weight. Yes. Yes. A hundred percent. And, but even if it isn't as, let's say you are losing weight, there still are so many benefits, even though muscle gain might be slower and you're a beginner, you are putting down so many good habits in terms of how you're training, how you're eating as well. So that way, when you do finish your weight loss phase and you either go into a maintenance phase or a surplus, you will have already learned the ropes in terms of training. You will be executing all your lifts well, training with intensity, eating well, your protein distribution is good, protein quality is good, all that kind of stuff. So as soon as you enter a weight gain phase or a maintenance, like gains are gonna come real quick. Yeah, exactly. It really does come down to building those habits for sure. Mm. So uh, I think we've uh, established most of those points. Basically, to sum it up, yes, it's entirely possible. Be realistic with how quickly it's gonna happen. And that's not saying it's not gonna happen, but basically your level of advancement will determine how much muscle and how much fat you can gain. Yeah, because imagine you and I right now, if we were just trying to maintain the same weight for like the next six months, we wouldn't make much progress with our physiques or in the gym. Not at all, and I guess that's another point is it depends on the extremity of how far you're going. Like 
I don't think either of us, by the end of prep, we wouldn't have a net increase in muscle mass, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. We might have, at best case, we will have maintained 100% all of our muscle. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, guys, hopefully that does answer the question. But I just want to reiterate that I think it's really important in this circumstance to have a coach or at least consult with a coach so that you can talk to someone about your long-term body composition goals and your long-term health and fitness goals. And you can really get some valuable evidence-based input so that they can have a good look at your physique and you can tell them about how you're currently training and what your nutrition is currently doing and what your current body weight is and how long you've been that body weight. And they can actually help set you on the right track so they can tell you, yeah, you know, you could probably afford to go into a mini cut and then go back into a surplus. Or yeah, you should probably go into a surplus right now if you want to maxly gain muscle mass. Or mm. hey, you know, you just joined the gym. You could probably eke out some body recomposition gains over these next two months. Then let's consult again and see where you're at. So it just really helps to actually talk to someone. Yeah, and that links up really well with a post we just made on Instagram about plateauing and why you're not making progress so like even small things like not not small by any means but i've had some males come to me and they're they're doing pretty much everything correct but then i might do a dietary recall and then i find out okay you're not really having much animal protein at all and your total protein intake is like a less than 100 grams and even something like that just bumping them up to a more normal amount for muscle growth and improving the quality of the protein like they automatically start seeing results straight away. And I have, I have someone right now who we, he's, I've been working with him for like eight to 10 weeks and it's the best results he's ever had because finally able to put all these variables into one timeline rather than, oh, I'm going to hit training consistently for two months, but nutrition kind of takes a bit of a back burner um, and sleep might take a bit of a back burner. But now that we've kind of aligned everything together, like boom, it's uh, it's night and day difference. Yeah, oh boy, that's what I love when you finally sign up with someone and they just start being consistent for literally weeks on end rather mm. than having one week on, one week off and they just tell you like, these are the best results I've gotten in the shortest space of time. And again, it's not magic. It's purely just consistency and following an evidence-based structured plan. Mm. And finding what works for you because someone might it might genuinely not be sustainable for someone if if they think they have to eat eight meals a day train twice a day or they have to do keto as well as training and all that kind of stuff but once you kind of explain to them it's much more simple than that and it's much more sustainable then and finding a plan that works well with them and and making it together it's, uh, it's, yeah, it's crazy. Yeah, honestly, nothing makes me happier than when I can sign up with a girl and initially she's eating, we do a dietary recall and, you know, she's trying to restrict herself to like 1500 calories per day. And every time she goes into the gym, she kind of does cardio or she fluffs around with a few exercises, but she doesn't have actually a structured program. Then you actually get her onto a structured program and you get her eating consistently more food and it's from very nutritious sources, but you're progressing them in the gym every single week, upping their weights, getting them to do a few extra reps, just making them train harder. 
and they're maintaining the same body weight. Every time they send through progress photos, they're just looking even leaner and they're eating more food. And then, you know, after two months, they're eating like an extra thousand calories per day. They're the same body weight. They're a beast in the gym. And they're like, this is amazing. But again, it's, it's not magic. It's mm. just about staying on top of things. Yeah. And I guess it's, it might, we should do a sneaky disclaimer there saying everyone, there's varying levels of response. Like not everyone can up their calories by a thousand in, in a month. Yeah, I know. Absolutely. But still generally people can eat more than they think when they start training properly and they start training hard Mm. and they commit to it as well. Yeah, exactly. Awesome. Hey guys, just a reminder that we post regular informative content on both our Instagram and YouTube channel. So make sure to go over to those platforms and search The Bodybuilding Dietitians. See you there. So we'll head into our next question now. And this one says, are waist trainers a useful tool to get a smaller waist? Why do so many pros use them? I almost feel like we should touch on that second point first asking Mm, it's a nice two-part question yeah why do so many professional athletes use waist trainers now i just want to highlight the point that just because a professional athlete does something that doesn't mean that that defines why they are a professional Mm. yeah there's plenty of athletes who i know not not really but i know a few athletes who for example have chicken shakes and there's no way I'm, you'll see me having a chicken shake, that's for sure. Yeah, I much prefer eating it off the leg yeah. <laughs> rather than blending it up. Or, or even something like to the extreme where like a very successful athlete might say, yeah, I'm really hardcore. I only have three hours of sleep per night. That doesn't mean you're going to turn around and say, wow, that means three hours of sleep. That, that's on the money. I must do that in order to get the best results. Mm-hmm. And yeah, basically what Tierra said is right. Just because they're doing something that doesn't mean it's going to be like gospel for, for making the best results. Yeah. And supplements majorly play in with that, you know, Mm. just because someone's popping some pill that they preach is magic. That's not what won them their IFBB pro card. Mm. And like, you got to look at what their physique was like before using the waist trainer as well. Like, (laughs) has it really changed that much? Yeah. So that's the thing, right? So waist trainers, they are hugely popular. Even some guys use waist trainers, but obviously it's very popular among female athletes. And of course, you know, they're sold that idea that, Hey, if you wear this fancy waist trainer, you're going to have a smaller waist. And unfortunately guys, like the reason why your waist is going to be small on stage isn't because you did your stairmaster cardio for two hours a day in a waist trainer. All right. The reason why your waist is going to be small is because you put in the time and the work and you dieted and you went into a calorie deficit for a prolonged period of time and you lost a sufficient amount of body fat off your waist mm. so that you have a tiny little waist. Yeah. So Things that are going to affect your waist is like your your bone structure, your muscle insertions. For example, like someone might have really thick obliques, which I mean, Tierra loves obliques, but the reality is obliques, having thick obliques will lead to the illusion of a larger waist, mm. not a smaller waist. I just think waist. they're such a beautiful muscle. <laughs> yeah. But so it really just comes down to your genetic makeup and that's kind of like a boring answer, but... Are there ways that you can make your waist smaller? Yes, by losing the body fat around your waist. And I guess once you're able to 
once you have like four mils or less on the skinfold calipers <laughs> or you can pinch like the graininess of your skin in between your fingers, then you truly know, okay, this is exactly what God gave me in terms of how thick my waist is. Yeah, but man, just genetics is gonna play such a huge role because imagine if you have really narrow hips and like a really wide rib cage or mm. something, like unfortunately you're not gonna have that that hourglass figure in this tiny little waist. But again, when women wear waist trainers, of course it creates the illusion that they have a smaller waist because literally it's like wearing a corset, mm. right? If you are wearing this thing and it's literally squeezing you, of course it's gonna create the illusion that you have a smaller waist because you're compressing everything within yeah. you. You're compressing your vital organs, you're compressing your intestines and your stomach. And gosh, to be honest, you're actually gonna run into a lot of issues with that. And there's actually been some research done on corsets, especially cause they were so popular back in like the 1800s and stuff like mm. that. But boy. I always think of, you know, the, the first parts of the Caribbean where mm -hmm. she, she faints because she's wearing a corset. Yeah, take that thing off. Let this woman breathe. <laughs> but that's the thing. So. A waist trainer, of course, if you're only wearing it for like half an hour of day, yeah, it's probably not going to lead to chronic health issues. But let's say you're wearing this thing for 12 hours every single day and it's constantly compressing you. I would argue that you are going to run into some long-term issues. Because again, you're compressing everything within your abdomen. You're literally squishing your intestines and your bladder and your uterus together and your kidneys together. You're compressing your stomach as well. So you can actually, it can actually lead to quite a few issues if you are wearing a waist trainer for a prolonged period of time. And things like this would include like gastric reflux. Imagine like putting on a waist trainer right after you've just eaten a meal, okay? And you can't properly digest your food. You're probably gonna have some reflux. You're probably gonna be burping back up your pre-workout meal on the Stairmaster. I can attest to that wearing a, a lifting belt. Like I used to eat right before my session back in 2018 prep. And then I would chuck on my belt and do squats. And yeah, one time it, I, it was too close a call and let's just say the uh, gym rubbish bin was involved. Yuck, man. And like a waist trainer is like taking a lifting belt to another level in yeah. terms of compression. Yeah, so, you know, obviously you're gonna experience potentially some gastric reflux. Also, wearing a waist trainer for a prolonged period of time, it puts a lot of pressure on your lungs and your diaphragm too. And there's actually even some literature, particularly on corsets, but it can reduce your total lung capacity. So you can't breathe as well. And if you can't breathe as well while you're exercising, good luck for your performance. Mm, 100%. Yeah, but as well, actually wearing a waist trainer, it does stop you from actually engaging a lot of the muscles in your core. So it can lead to muscular atrophy, which is a mm. fancy way of saying you're going to lose muscle mass in your core. And if you don't have much muscle mass in your core, that's probably going to lead to a lot of back issues as well. Yeah. I think that's, that's the one that stands out to me the most having, uh, having had a back issue before, like losing that, even the mind muscle connection with your core, because with it, when you're wearing something that tight, you can you don't really need to engage your core. And I know there's people who make the opposite argument by saying, oh, if I wear a waist trainer, I'm gonna be more conscious of my core. But it, that doesn't really make much sense. No, because isn't it essentially doing the work for you? Yeah, so yeah, it's, um, 
a bit redundant in that aspect. Yeah, and I've heard this other argument saying that the way that the waist trainer actually works and long-term how it actually makes your waist smaller is that it helps shift your ribs. But apparently they justify this by it's okay because it only moves the bottom two ribs, which are your floating ribs. So I guess if any of you guys studied anatomy at university or anything like that, you would know that the average human being has 12 pairs of ribs. The first seven ribs, they actually attach onto your sternum and they're known as your true ribs. So all of your ribs attach to your spine and the first seven, they come around and they actually attach to your sternum, which people call the breastbone. Then the next three ribs, they're called the false ribs. So they come around, but they don't actually attach to the sternum, but they attach to the costal cartilage that is attached to your sternum. Then your final two ribs, they're called the floating ribs. So these, they attach to your spine, but they come around and essentially they're floating. They're not attached to your sternum. They're not attached to cartilage. They're not attached to really anything on the anterior portion of your torso. And I've heard people say that, oh, okay, well, when you wear a waist trainer, it actually helps to readjust those bottom two ribs, your floating ribs, so they come in a little bit more to wake, make your waist even smaller. And like, they're like, it's okay, because you know, they're not attached to anything, they're floating, they have the potential to move, and I'm like, those things aren't meant to move. <laughs> yeah, your ribs are there for a reason. <laughs> exactly, leave them be, man. <laughs> that just reminds me of, of like in ballet or something, or in certain cultures, they used to like break the, the feet of young women. Not in ballet, I should say, because that means they wouldn't be able to do ballet. But they, in certain cultures in Asia, I think they used to break the female shoot, uh, feet and then chuck them in really tight shoes so then they would have small feet forever yeah either they ouch they break their feet or i think that movie i think it was memoirs of a geisha i might be completely wrong here that's an incredible movie but in that movie they might have actually put yeah the females we'll them very tightly I'm yeah sure. they put them in these tiny shoes and they're not allowed to take them off so it literally stops their feet from growing so they have mm. these little petite feet and like i couldn't imagine of a worse area to mess with than your your back and your rib cage and your spine. Gosh, man, like diet and exercise, okay? Take the safe route, yeah. all right? So pretty much waist trainers, not necessary, okay? You pretty much, you don't need to wear a waist trainer. You probably just need to lose some weight mm. and that takes time, of course. But yeah, don't buy into these things, guys. Don't sacrifice your health. Please don't move your ribs. Okay. And essentially I think that actually having more muscle in your core, again, bodybuilding is a sport of illusions. If you're not wearing a waist trainer and you can actually train your core and sure, hold off on the obliques. If you think that makes it look like you have wide hips or something like that, but actually training your core and having more muscular definition, that's really going to make you have a more predominant, beautiful core with musculature there rather than just leading to a whole bunch of atrophy. Yeah. hundred percent. I couldn't agree more and you won't see either of us using waist trainers, that's for sure. No, especially once we become professional bodybuilders. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely not. So pretty much recommend steer clear. And again, remember if you've set out with the ultimate goal to get just this tiny little waist and you want to wear a waist trainer for 12 or 14 hours during the day and you're doing this chronically, unfortunately you might run into issues where you actually sacrifice 
the rest of your progress with the rest of your physique. Because if you're always wearing this thing, then you might not be able to perform as well in the gym. Maybe just because it's really tight, you feel uncomfortable, you can't lift as heavy. Again, your lung capacity is compromised, so you can't breathe as well. You don't have as good cardiorespiratory fitness. You can't perform, okay? And again, maybe you're wearing this tiny little corset waist trainer, but essentially you're not gonna be able to make as much progress in other areas of your physique like every single other limb on your body so just take that into account as well but essentially guys save your money right invest that in a good health and fitness coach or go get a massage whatever it may be but yeah would not recommend (laughs) yeah couldn't agree more awesome okay so moving on to the final question for the day what is a jack so this one says what do you guys think about the phrase Are you eating enough to lose weight? Hey guys, just a reminder that we offer coaching services, which you can find on our website by searching The Bodybuilding Dietitians on Google or via the show notes below. We coach anyone with a health and fitness related goal. So I think this question, it's a little bit backwards when you really think (laughs) about it. (laughs) Yeah, so imagine how good this good this scenario would be if like yeah you're you're not losing weight you're not seeing any progress and then your coach gives you 2000 extra calories and then boom you've you're you're on a steady downward trend of of weight loss that would be magical but obviously that isn't true but it does have some element of truth to it mm-hmm. and we'll kind of break that down now but first we'll kind of dispel why eating more to lose weight it just doesn't make sense Yeah. Well, essentially, if you need to lose weight, you need to be in a calorie deficit. And if you are accurately reporting your dietary intake and you are consistently eating a certain amount and your weight isn't budging, then I'm sorry, you're not in a calorie deficit. So Mm -hmm. I wouldn't necessarily say that adding an extra 1000 to 2000 calories on top of that is adding any more food. Like it just doesn't, it doesn't make sense because you're putting yourself out of that deficit Mm -hmm. or putting yourself into an even greater surplus or from a maintenance to a surplus. It's just math. It's thermodynamics. Yeah. And where this might come from is like refeeds and diet breaks where people undertake a diet break or they do a one day refeed, like bring themselves up to maintenance. They might get some weight loss from that, but that's, again, it's not, it's off the cuff of being in a deficit. It's not they are chronically in a maintenance or a surplus and then they increase their calories more and they lose weight. They've already done the work required to lose some body weight and they just might be getting some water weight loss or they're getting some weight loss that they've already earned, if that makes sense. Yeah, or ultimately, if someone has an adaptive metabolism, if you give them a little bit more food, then they're going to burn even more energy. So they will put themselves into a larger net calorie deficit. And then Mm. that's how you lead to weight loss. Yeah. I mean, that's, I would say that's a less likely scenario, but it definitely could happen. And it's happened to me before. Me too. Yeah. We both have adaptive metabolisms, but let's talk about the element of truth here. And this is something that, yeah, more of what what we take out of this saying. I don't know about other health and fitness professionals, but eating more to lose weight. So the way I interpret this, if I was to explain it correctly to someone, I would say metabolisms are adaptive, which means that if you enter a chronic period of uh, eating more food, like your, your body will need to eat more food over time in, in order to gain more weight. 
So let's say if you chuck someone on 2000 calories, they're not gonna gain forever on 2000 calories. They might gain a kilo, they might gain six, but eventually you're gonna need to increase that amount of food in order to, for them to keep gaining weight. That's adaptive thermogenesis. And it goes the opposite way when you're dieting. So if someone is, is losing weight on 2000 calories, they might lose one kilo, they might lose six, but eventually you're gonna to have to either increase your expenditure or decrease your intake in order to keep that weight loss going. So the way I interpret the saying, eat more to lose weight, is it's much, much, much more productive to have been in a phase of adaptive thermogenesis from a gaining perspective or even a maintenance where you very slowly increase their energy intake over time, maintaining the same body weight. And yes, for some people that'll be very easy, for some people it'll be very difficult, but that will make the weight loss process potentially easier. Mm -hmm. And there is some argument to say that, let's say in a comp prep phase or an extended weight loss phase, someone, if they've done it before, they're gonna to have to get to very similar calories again to get to that body weight again. But where I'm coming from in this perspective is someone who is entering a weight loss phase in uh, having already, having an, an impaired metabolism already basically. So for example, they might've been yo-yo dieting or they might've dieted and then rebounded straight away. So that way, that way they've gained maybe 10 kilos but they're eating the same amount of food. Like if they more appropriately reverse or they more appropriately build their calories up, theoretically they should be able to lose weight on more food. I'm not talking about someone like Tierra and I who have a very who has a very structured off season and who reverses well that is yet to come, but reverses quite well. Like where we're gonna be able to we'll be losing weight on very similar calories and that's held true for this prep versus last prep. Mm -hmm. And that's such a good point because when we think about our macros right now and how far we are out from specific shows, we are eating the same amount that we were last prep. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, pretty much. I think that that is really true. Almost like literally to the macro, it's been, or to the calorie, it's, it's very, very similar. Yeah. Obviously our food choices are different having, it's been like two or three years, but in order to get down to the body fat we're at now, it's very similar energy intake. Yeah, it is interesting, isn't it? So I guess that just goes to show that depending on how much muscle mass that you actually have, it really doesn't influence your metabolic rate by like hundreds of calories mm. every single day, right? Yeah, it doesn't. And we've, we've discussed that on the podcast before. But then I guess you do have competitors who talk about how oh, I'm eating 500 calories more this prep compared to what I was last prep, and I do look way better. Mm. Again, there's going to be well, a that, lot of factors that play into that. For example, what if they weren't even doing like a resistance training program last mm. prep and they were only doing cardio? Like, of course that's going to influence your total daily energy expenditure, the amount of muscle mass that you retain. Yeah, well, they might be doing an extra 10,000 steps per day or... It brings me back to my last point where they might have had a very suboptimal starting position last prep. Like they might have only been eating 1500 calories in their off season, but in their, in their most recent off season, they were eating 3000 calories. So mm. it, uh, it just depends on, like Tierra said, so many variables. But from a point of thermodynamics, it doesn't make sense in the acute period to be like, okay, I'm, I need to eat more calories to lose weight. 
It just doesn't make sense. Yeah, I guess sometimes this might just play in with you really need to look at things on a chronic time scale rather than just a day. Mm. Because, for example, you could do a dietary recall with someone and be like, tell me what you ate today. They might have eaten like a bird that day. And they're like, oh, I've only eaten 1,200 calories today. And yeah, you know, for these past six months, I've just been packing on the weight. And you're like, well, for your body composition, you should definitely be able to eat more calories, right? And I feel like this is the situation a lot of people get in with at the doctor's office. Yeah. <laughs> like a doctor might ask them what they've been eating and they mm. list off a few things during the day and it's like minimal food. And then the doctor just kind of spouts out like, oh, well, maybe you need to eat more to increase your metabolism. (laughs) But they don't even take into account that that was just one anomaly day or that was one day out of the whole week. What about on the weekend when this person goes out and they eat breakfast, lunch, and dinner out Mm. or they have a big night out and they're drinking a bunch of cocktails and you you need to take total weekly energy balance into account. And perhaps someone might be like, yeah, perhaps you actually do need to eat more on your very low calorie days in order to lose weight because people do get into really vicious cycles of restricting themselves for like days on end, maybe five or six days out of the week, they restrict themselves. And then one day they just, they get so ravenous Mm. and so hungry, they just blow it out of proportion and they just eat so much food and that sets them back. But Mm. it's like, hey, if we just ate an extra like 200 or 300 calories every single day, that would actually keep you in a net deficit throughout the week. You wouldn't be eating 4,000 calories on a Sunday. And hey, then maybe you could lose a little bit of weight. Mm. Yeah, that's a really interesting angle that I didn't think of where kind of like even the low and high day approaches where some you might strategically plan low days and high days, but the, the high days, having that taste of extra food on the high days and having the really low days might not psychologically work with you or you might be craving food after those high days because you have to go back down to the low days. So then it just depends. It's just a play on words, really. Like technically you're increasing your low day calories to lose weight more consistently or mm-hmm. easier. So it does depend how you how you structure it like that. Yeah, and that's why whenever I do a dietary recall with someone, I always ask them, okay, based off the most average day of the week, what are you eating? Mm. But I'm always asking people, okay, what about the other three days of the week? Or what do you get up to on the weekends, right? Because yeah. then you start to uncover a few more of these things mm. and you're like, aha. Yeah, <laughs> the most important thing about doing a dietary recall for the client is to be 100% honest with the practitioner or the the coach or the dietitian. Yeah, I couldn't agree more because again, like honesty is the best policy, okay? Yeah. And if you are booking in with a dietitian and you really do want to get their help, but the best way that they can help you is to truly understand what you are putting into your body on a consistent basis. If you are very overweight, but then you come to a dietitian and you know you spout off this super low calorie meal plan or something off the top of your head, which you're actually not eating, mm. or maybe you're eating for one or two days of the week, it's going to make the practitioner very confused. Yeah, 100%. But uh, yeah, hopefully we explained that question well. I hope I didn't get too mixed up in my explanation. If, <laughs> if you're still a bit hesitant in terms of understanding or you think we might not be saying something 100% accurate, just send us a DM on Instagram and we'll chat to you about it. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. Cool. Well, that's it for this episode. As always, though, we'll finish with something that we learned this week and I'll let Tierra start this one off. Oh my goodness. Okay. So I learned this week that sometimes actually being deficient in a nutrient 
might have some perks <laughs> in a very strange way. But essentially, I've signed up with this girl recently and she doesn't eat red meat. So I asked her to actually go get a blood test from the doctor to check on her iron levels. And it did come back that she was significantly anemic. She was very iron deficient. And her and her boyfriend went for a holiday this past weekend. He surprised her and they booked a hotel room, but turns out the hotel room didn't have a kitchen. So when they found this out, the boyfriend actually persuaded the reception desk woman, right? Talking about how, oh, my girlfriend, you know, she's deficient in iron and I have to cook her her meals. So we really need a room with a kitchen. They got upgraded for free to like one of these suites in the hotel for free, just because he was talking about how she was iron deficient. And <laughs> I was like, what on earth? Right? So, you know, I guess it turns out that it's not all bad if you're deficient in a nutrient. You can find the bright side of any situation. Yeah. But good news is my client, she did get an iron infusion this past week. Those ferritin levels are up. So she's all good. And she also got to spend the weekend in a much nicer hotel room. Mm. Well, um, that's definitely boyfriend, top boyfriend material right there. <laughs> yeah, take a Sets note, the Jack. Bar high. <laughs> but uh, I want to know, what did you learn this past week? Cool. Well, I've really been enjoying the powdered peanut butter from Marmadukes and I've just been, you know, experimenting around with a few different things here and there. And one thing I did wrong, I actually learned something from a mistake as well. Not a mistake, but a fairly impaired situation, just like <laughs> iron deficiency. And I was mixing my powdered peanut butter with water as you do to create the paste or create the peanut butter. And uh, surprise, surprise, I added too much water and it was turned into basically liquid consistency. So I thought to myself, hmm, I don't really wanna pour this out, so let's try and microwave it and see what happens. And lo and behold, uh, it turned into this really, really thick, creamy, puffy paste. It was basically like really thick, hot peanut butter, and it kind of solved, solved all my life issues at once, then Freak and there. Freaking <laughs> incredible. I cannot wait to try doing the exact same mistake yeah. <laughs> tomorrow. Yeah. So, okay, so Marmadukes, they are awesome. They provide powdered peanut butter, similar to Macro Mike, but I guess anyone out there with using powdered peanut butter, PB2, can you just tell them, so how much powder do you use, mm. how much water do you use, and how long do you microwave it for? Yeah, so I, I measured it today at Tierra's request and it was about 35 mils of water, about 12 grams of powdered peanut butter and I microwaved it for 30 seconds, but we've got a high strength microwave. So mm -hmm. start small and work up. But uh, yeah, I'm going to start just adding more water and see how it goes <laughs> because obviously if, if I can get 100, mil no, not 100, but if I can get an extra 10 mils of water and just increase the volume of that peanut butter, like... It's, I'm at that stage of prep now where it'll be a win. So I'm interested. You guys try it out. I know a lot of you will probably be using Macro Mike, but tag us in in your um, outcomes because I'm genuinely interested to see how you guys go and whether you like it. Oh, I am so excited to try it tomorrow because literally like one, the volume is crazy. Also, it's it's warm. So you get it smells a lot mm. better too. It just smells like the kitchen's full of hot peanut butter. But also it's like, airy you know it's yeah. almost like whipped it's peanut fluffy. butter oh boy yeah oh <laughs> tomorrow man woohoo looking forward to thursday all right guys well thank you very much for tuning into one episode 109 again if you did enjoy it please remember to take a screenshot post it to your instagram stories tag jack tag myself tag the bodybuilding dietitians and we'll catch you next week catch you later guys